0: Some people want to live with someone before marriage to see what it's like living together and if they should marry. So, what does the Bible say about living together? It's this week's Cross Culture Q&A question, Pastor Clay's answer, right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: One of the knocks against Christianity in the modern culture in which we live, is that people just don't see the point. People just don't see any difference in the life of a person who claims to be a a follower of Christ and someone who doesn't.
0: 3D. It's become the craze of our day. Hollywood is cranking out 3D films in record numbers. Television is even going 3D. Of course, the fascination with three-dimensional viewing is that it allows someone to see a more realistic, more lifelike image than ever before. 3D seems to make what you're watching so real you can almost reach out and touch it. So what about Christians? When people see our lives, is our walk with Jesus so real that people can reach out and touch it? If you and I are going to
1: have an impact in this world, our lives as followers of Jesus, if you're here and you claim that name, you said, I've placed my trust in him. He is my God. He died for my sins. He rose again. I believe he's coming back again to receive me. That's, I, that's where I've thrown in. If that's you and you're here and that's where you are this morning, then our lives must be distinguishable from those who don't have this God.
0: I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today, we begin a brand new series here at Cross Culture Church entitled Cross Culture in 3D So Real You Can Touch It. Over the next several weeks, Pastor Clay is going to walk us through what he calls the 3Ds of a disciple, or as we like to say around here, a fully devoted follower of Jesus.
1: We're going three dimensional, folks. We're going 3D. Desire, discipline, duplication.
0: As we'll learn in this series, those three D's represent desire, discipline, and duplication. All three are crucial in the life of a disciple of Christ. Today, Pastor Clay is going to help us understand the first dimension of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, desire. We're glad you've joined us for this exciting series as we learn how to make our walk with Jesus so real people can reach out and touch it. Now here's Pastor Clay with today's message.
1: of you know who David Brewster is? Now, I'll just be honest with you, I would be surprised if any of you knew who David Brewster was. I didn't have a clue who he was, so I began to do some research. But all the way back in 1844, David Brewster invented something known as a stereoscope. It was an invention that allowed a photographic image to be captured three-dimensionally. 3D. I had no idea that 3D went that far back. Did you? In the 1930s, uh, 3D films kind of really were the rage for a while. And it kind of died out again. And then kind of came back in the 1950s. And 3D was kind of big. You can see some of them old photographs. Everybody wearing, you know, the the white kind of paper glasses and all that kind of stuff. But in the last, what, couple of years, year or two, 3D... I mean, has really caught on. I mean, uh, intensely or not, David Brewster has a lot to do with the price that you and I pay for movie tickets these days um, if you happen to go to the, to the movies. In the last couple years, uh, 3D has really, I mean, it seems like almost every film or every other film coming uh, down the pike these days is, you know, in 3D. We even have 3D television now. Have any of y'all got a 3D television? <laughs> well, well, praise God, Paris. Invite me over when you get one. I'd like to. I'd like to see it. Um, I've read some stuff that says television, as we know it, will be obsolete within five years because of because of three D uh, television. Now, of course, the reason that it, I think at least part of the reason why it's become so popular is again is because the technology in the digital age in which we live has advanced so much that the images that we're viewing, what it is we're seeing just seems so uh, vivid, so lifelike, so real that it seems as if you can almost reach out and touch it. So real, you can reach out and touch it. That's what this series is all about, that we're beginning today. Let's just be honest. One of the knocks against Christianity in the modern culture in which we live is that people just don't see the point. People just don't see any difference in the life of a person who claims to be a, a, a follower of Christ and someone who doesn't. In almost every statistical category that can be tracked, there's virtually no difference between those who follow Christ, claim to follow Christ, and those who don't. We, the divorce rate is just as high. The depression uh, diagnosis seems just as, as high in almost every category that has to do with, with life and, and contentment and, and, and enjoyment of life. There is, as I said, virtually no distinguishable difference between those who say, I follow Christ, and those who say, eh. that has got to change, ladies and gentlemen. That's got to to change, if you and I are going to have an impact in this world, our lives as followers of Jesus, if you're here and you claim that name, you said, I've placed my trust in him, he is my God, he died for my sins, he rose again, I believe he's coming back again to receive me, that's, I, that's where I've thrown in. If that's you and you're here and that's where you are this morning, then our lives must be distinguishable from those who don't have this god otherwise really what's the point by the way i place much of the blame for the current state of the church at the feet of preachers pastors for a long time uh, there was this idea that well let's just let's just go out let's just knock on people's door cold calling is what it's called let's knock on people's door let's get in there and give them this this uh, memorized presentation, this canned presentation of, of how they can accept Jesus as their Savior and, and there's lot, there were lots of different methods coming out but almost all of them finished with the same question. Listen, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior tonight? By the way, nothing wrong with that question. Nothing wrong with asking that question. People need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I believe everybody does. Nothing wrong with that question. But... It it seemed that there was this mentality, and I was right. I mean, I was. There seemed to be this mentality that just just get them to pray that little prayer, you know. Just just get them down the aisle. Just get them baptized if you can. Just get their names on that church roll. And as a result, I'm just being honest with you. As a result, church rolls are full. ...of the names of people who have no more idea of what it means to follow Jesus... ...than a pig knows what it means to fly. To make matters worse... ...in the last few years there has been a growing trend... ...to what I would call dumb down Christianity. To begin to remove the elements of it that perhaps would be offensive... ...to this person or that group or whatever... ...and begin to, to reduce the expectations on the life of a person that says, I'm following Christ. There's, there's been a move towards, well, we, you know, we don't want to offend anybody and, and we don't want to you know, put more, scare them off by saying, you, you ought to be doing this and this ought to be in your life and this. You don't want to scare them off and so we just got to uh, water that, that down. And the result, I just, the result is a Christianity that doesn't even remotely resemble the Christianity that we read about in the New Testament. It's got to change. There's got to be something in our lives that make those who claim to follow Christ more content, more joyful, more fulfilled, more peaceful, more uh, loving, more forgiving than those without Christ. If we're ever going to make any difference. In fact, our lives, our walk with Christ has to become so real that people can actually reach out and touch it. Oh, that's what a Christian looks like. Oh, now I see. Wow, they, they sure have a lot of joy in their life. The peace, boy, they, they seem so... And, and listen, can I say this? Not any better. We're not any better than anybody without Christ. We're better off, but we're not any better. Those who have come to Christ simply know his grace and his spirit has come to dwell within us and he's changing us into the person he wants us to be. That's what this series is all about. Can I tell you, that, that idea of making, here, here's what, here's what I say this a lot, fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's not just a slogan, ladies and gentlemen. That's a mandate from God Almighty. Matthew chapter 28, maybe you've read this before. Therefore, go and make disciples. It says nothing about getting them to pray this little prayer or or getting them to walk that aisle. Make a disciple, a follower of me, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them, these these new disciples, to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a mandate from God Almighty. And it is part of the, the, the birth of cross-culture church to begin with. To not dumb it down or water it down or to, uh, do I want to see this place full? Absolutely. Two or three times. But we will not do it at the expense of the truth. That's what this series is all about. How do I make my walk with Christ so real that people can actually see it in my life? We're going to spend the next number of weeks learning how to do that. We're we're going three-dimensional, folks. We're going 3D. Desire, discipline, duplication. Those are the three Ds that we're going to be discussing over a number of weeks. And we begin today with desire. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you today, you can open it to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, The text will be up on the screen as well. I'm jumping off this morning in Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, but we're going to be in a lot of different verses today. I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you this. This is kind of a topical uh, idea this idea of beginning with desire. Because listen to me now, if you don't have this, if you and I don't begin here with desire, listen to me, none of the rest of what I'll talk about over the next 8, 10 weeks will make any difference at all. We've got to begin. Desire has to be the first dimension of this 3D look at Christianity. Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, let me read it to you this morning from the New American Standard, begins in verse 23, and it says this. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Watch this, verse 24. But let him who boasts boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. What is the desire of your life? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Don't, you don't got to answer it out loud or anything. But I want you to think about that. What is the desire of your life? What is the desire of my life? Now, I ask that question because, ladies and gentlemen, that is the question. I mean, that's it. That's the question. What is the desire of my life? Do I desire this or that or the things of God or my personal comfort? Or what is the desire of of our lives. I think it's interesting that Jeremiah, in that text that we looked at a moment ago, I think it's interesting that, that Jeremiah begins with the things that basically he's saying that we should not desire. Wisdom, knowledge, it, it's, it's, it's referring to earthly, uh, man-made knowledge that I can, that, that I can uh, acquire in my life. Power, strength, position, and wealth, riches, the good life. Now, just for the record, I, I'm not saying, and I, and I don't think God through the prophet Jeremiah is saying, that those things in and of themselves are bad. He's, he's not saying that. But is that the desire of my life? Is the idea of if I just gained position or some notoriety or some fame or some power, uh, if I just had some authority, if I just had some wealth, or if I just had the good life, or, is that the priority of my life? He's not saying those things in and of themselves are bad, but are they the, the, the desire of my life? Because God says those things, power and prestige and position and and wealth and, and, and money, all those types of things, God says, those things aren't anything to brag about. But instead, he says in verse 24, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and Righteous, all those things that it goes on and talks about. You want to brag about something God says? Brag about the fact that you know me. What's the desire of your life? The desire. The desire to know him. Let's start there. The desire to know him. Let's uh, look at a passage of scripture that uh, deals with that. Let's look at a person in his life who understood that idea. Turn uh, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And he's reflecting a little bit on his life as he's encouraging them in their walk with Christ. And this, is, this idea of desiring to know him comes up. Now listen to what he says. Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more... I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of, what's that next word? Say it. Knowing, knowing Christ, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is Through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Watch this. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's a guy that got it. I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul, or before he was converted, his name was what? Saul, before before he came to, to faith in Christ and God changed his name to Paul, prior to that, his name was Saul. Here's a guy, Saul, listen, I'm telling you, Saul could have been the poster child for that passage in Jeremiah that we looked at a few moments ago. Knowledge, education, wisdom, yeah, buddy, you better believe it, Saul had that. He had the finest education of his day. He studied under a man named Gamaliel, who... Uh, was arguably the, the most renowned teacher of Judaism in the entire world at that time. Power? Saul had that too. He had an enormous amount of, of power that he wielded. And you can read about that in, in the early chapters of Acts. As, as the, I mean, Saul was it. He was the rising star of the Pharisees. He was the leading young Pharisee of his day. He had, he had the power. As well, and wealth. I don't doubt for a moment that Saul had the wealth as well. Because listen, that's a principle that hasn't changed in this world at all, has it? Even to this day, it is those with the with with the with the 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 the, the wisdom of man, the knowledge. It is those with the power who are also usually the ones that have most of the wealth in this world, isn't it? Oh, I, I suspect he had all that as well. And Paul says, "I consider it worthless to knowing Christ." He says all of that stuff it is what he essentially says. He says all of that, all of that stuff, all of that, all that wisdom, and all that power, and all that wealth, and all that stuff. He says I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, <laughs> our translations—I'm going to tell you right now—our translations kind of clean that up for us. Paul says I consider them garbage. Uh, the word. Uh, you may be aware of the New Testament was originally written in, in Greek, in the Greek language. The word that Paul used there, by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. I think, at least partially, perhaps, because of the vileness of the word. The word is skubala in the original language, which it can mean garbage or refuse, but it just as commonly meant sewage, excrement, dung, as one of the more literal translations puts verse 8. How ironic is that? How ironic that all of the stuff, right? All of the stuff that the world holds in such high esteem, power and wealth and fame and fortune and and, 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 and all of this is all the stuff that the world holds in such high esteem. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, hey, you know that mountain that all 'all y'all trying to climb to be king of is really just a big old pile of stuff. Sorry stuff. Got y'all, didn't I? He says, I want to know Christ. Man, I, I've had all that stuff, and I'm telling you, it's nothing I want to know Christ. It's just garbage. It's just dung. It's just, it's not even to know him. And I'm going to tell you, that's a power I know i got to move on, but listen, can I, can I just ask us this question, those of us here who, who have claimed the name of Christ, can I, can I ask all of us this question? Are you, would you be at a place that you, would I be at a place that I would say, I want to suffer if it'll help me know Christ better? Because that's what Paul's saying. Oh yeah, the power of his resurrection. I, everybody, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the fellowship of his sufferings. No, you ever go through life and the stuff of life, and just say, I don't. Why, why? Why does God do this? I don't understand. Why I have to go through all this? I don't understand why it doesn't get any better. I don't understand. And and Paul's almost like, and, and listen, I, Paul's like, keep it on. I want more because I want to know Christ. And if that's what it takes to know him, to know him intimately and personally and powerfully, that's what I want because it's worth it to know him. Here's another idea, to grow in him, to grow in him. Do you want to grow? Do you want to Grow up in this understanding of what it means to call yourself a follower of Jesus. Do you want to grow in that walk? Do you want to grow in that relationship? Do you? Do I really? I mean, I know, okay, it's church. Everybody knows how we're supposed to answer that question, right? But do you really want to grow? Paul uh, writes to the church in Corinth. And uh, listen to what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 3. I I tell you, it's... (laughs) Dear brothers and sisters, it starts out nice enough, doesn't it? Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. Uh-oh, this is turning south. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. Now, can I tell you something? Do you, I'm, I'm off track, but if I, to, if I were to say that to one of y'all, if I were to say, well, I can't really talk to you like a spiritual person, you know what you would do to me? I can't believe the preacher said that to me. I'm never coming back again. I don't know. I I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to, uh uh-oh, this world. Or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food. Why? Because you weren't ready for anything stronger. It gets worse. And you still aren't ready. You know how he knows it? Here it is. For you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You're jealous of one another. You quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you're controlled by your sinful nature? Well, how dare he say that? Aren't your actions proving what you're controlled by? Aren't you living... Oh, this is the one that hurts the most. Aren't you living like people of the world? That's exactly what I was talking about at the beginning. No distinguishable difference between those that say, I follow Christ and those that say, I don't give a rip about Christ. No difference. Now listen, that's hard. But you know why he says that to him? You know why he's saying it to us? He loves us. Mel, okay. Yes, it's good. And you come into a relationship with Christ and you learn those elemental truths. But, but you've got to move on. you got to want, you know what he's saying? You've got to want to grow up. Look at the writer of Hebrews. It doesn't get even. Writer of Hebrew essentially says the same things in in Hebrews chapter five concerning him. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain why, since you have become dull of hearing. Do you know what he's saying? That you're sitting out there saying yada yada yada, heard it before. Jesus on a cross died, coming back yada yada yada. And the writer Hebrew says, boy, I, I got a lot to say about this, but I can't say it to you because you've become so dull, of, you've heard it so much that it's just bouncing off. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, you, you ought to be teaching. You have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk. Wow. Oh, you come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, but he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of their practices of taking in solid food to grow in this this knowledge, and this information, to grow up in Christ, and because of it they're able to discern good and evil. And recognize when something is, is wrong or something doesn't fit in or, or whatever. You know, you know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Come on, say it. Grow up. Grow up. To grow in him. Do you desire that? Because I can promise you God desires that for you and for me. One more, real quick. What time is it? All right. Desire to know him, desire to grow in him. And third, desire to show him. In other words, to show him to the world around us and I was kind of getting at this idea, even at the very beginning to show him to the world around us, that, that our lives look different enough that people say, "Well now, wait a minute, there's something about your life. Well, I, I know you're not perfect, but so, you just something about it, the, the way you interact with people or, or the way you handle a situation, or, or you don't what is it? Do you desire to show him to the world around you? Well, no, I, like I said, because over the next few weeks, well, we're going to look at a lot of stuff that you can put into your life, but if desire is not there, it won't matter. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes uh, about this fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of this or, or read about this before. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. The Holy Spirit, if, if he dwells in you, here's what his... His work is to produce in you. Listen, now listen, listen to this now, this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now I, I'm, I'm just asking. Do you think if that stuff... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Do you, if, if that kind of stuff were the kind of stuff that were produced in our life, again, I know we're not all perfect. We don't we'd all have perfect days. We still sin and mess up from time to time. But if that were what were produced in our lives on a daily basis with the, with the stuff that comes into our life, if that were the reaction, do you think Do you think anybody would, would kind of sit up and take notice? Instead of, back up on the list, if you will, Tyler. In, in, instead, of, instead of hatred, Love. Instead of anger, joy. Instead of fighting, peace. Instead of impatience, patience. Just your own life. Just think about your own life. Instead of unkindness, kindness. Instead of badness, goodness. Instead of faithlessness, boy, don't you feel that way sometimes? You're like, how can I have so little faith? Instead of faithlessness, faithfulness. Instead of something, gentleness. Instead of lack of self-control, self control, self control. If that came out of our lives, but instead, our lives don't look like that a lot of times, do they? And we wonder why people don't want to know our Jesus. Huh! No. What if they actually saw that coming out of our lives? I'm telling you, I believe it would make a significant difference and people would sit up and take notes. Alright, so, the desire to know Him, I haven't even sat down once today. The desire to know Him, the desire to grow in Him, and the desire to show him, like I said, I've said it several times, we're going to look at a lot of stuff in the next, next, throughout this series. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff that you need in your life, that I, I need in my life, but it has to begin with desire. And here's really, uh, looked at a lot of verses and stuff, but this is really what, what I see as, as kind of the big picture here, the big picture biblical principle. Here's, here's what you need to know. If you say, I, I want desire, here's what you need to know. You need to desire, know that desire is caught more than desire is, is taught. It's caught more than it's taught. There's not really a class that you can t- attend on how to have more desire. You've either got it or you don't. Now, you can, uh, you can study and you can attend classes and, and learn more about God and, and grow in your relationship with Him and, and, and come to appreciate Him more and, and perhaps love Him more, more deeply and, and see your desire increase, but... This has got to be something that you want. Okay, all right, how? Let's say for a moment that, that you've, you've piqued my curiosity and you, you've, you've gotten your point across that there's got to be desire in my life, that everything else that the world considers valuable, not that they in themselves are necessarily bad, but if they are the priority of my life, if that's the mountain I'm trying to, to climb, it, it's, it's worthless, it's just garbage. It's not really what's of value, and, and, I, and I'm hearing what you say. So, all right, Pastor, how do I do it? I, there's lots of stuff I could say, but let me leave you with with three what I call action steps. Okay, they're very simple, but I think they'll get us down the road toward this desire thing. Number one, admit it. Admit it. First and foremost, admit it to yourself. Say, you know what. I haven't had a desire for God, not, not for the things of God. Not, not really. I mean, I love Him. I mean, I, I say I do, but I, I don't really have that desire. Because listen, you're only fooling yourself. Admit it and say, Man, I, I know it's not what it's supposed to be. Admit it to yourself and admit it to God. Just talk to Him and say, Father, I, I, I know I, my desire has not been where it, it ought to be, and, and I know I need more desire in my life. Listen, I know it's an old fashioned word, but it's still biblical repent. Metanoia, turn around and go in a new direction. Admit it to God and say, God, forgive me for the sin of apathy. Forgive me for being lethargic about my my walk with you. Forgive me for putting my faith on autopilot and assuming that was going to be good enough. Admit it. Second, ask for it. Ask him. God, I do admit, it's not where my desire has not been there. God, would you place within me a desire to know you like Paul had, a desire to grow in you like Paul challenged us to and other writers challenged us to? Would you place a desire in me to show the world that calling yourself a Christian actually makes a difference in your life? Ask him, do you think for a millisecond that that's a prayer that God wouldn't answer? Ask Him. Third, act on it. Act on it. Now, I I said that, that desire is more caught than it is taught, and I absolutely believe that that's true. But that doesn't mean that you can't begin to take action toward becoming the man of God, the woman of God, that God desires for you to be. Begin to act on what you've asked God to do. You've admitted it to Him. You've asked Him to give it to you. So begin to act on it. And in the next several weeks, we're going to look at some specific disciplines that should be built into your life that will have an impact on you. But it has to begin with... Say it. Say it. Say it one more time. It has to begin with desire. Otherwise, you'll spend your Christian life floundering around in this thing, half-heartedly doing this thing playing at this thing, and you'll never know what you could know. You'll never have what you could have. You'll never accomplish what God has for you to accomplish. You'll never experience all that God has for you. Desire it, and you'll begin to understand what it means to call yourself a fully devoted follower of Jesus.
0: Today, as Pastor Clay reminded us, if we're going to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, we have to begin with desire. Perhaps as you listened to the message today, you ask yourself the question that Pastor Clay asked in the message. Do you want to know God? Do you have the desire to know Him, to grow in Him, and to show Him the world? Our prayer for you here at Crosswalk is that you would be able to honestly answer that question for yourself. As Pastor Clay taught us, if the desire for the things of God is really not evident in your life, admit it to yourself and to God. Ask God to forgive you and to give you a deep abiding desire for Him. And finally, begin to act on the desire God gives you. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at ten thirty at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I five forty exit seven, and we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life changing power of the
1: Great question today. I've had this question a while and uh, just really getting around to to dealing with it. But it's a question that's very relevant for the culture and the society that we live in. And so let's get right to it because there's a lot of... If I do this in five... Well, I'm not going to do it in five minutes. But anyway, here's here's the Q&A for today. It looks like this. What does the Bible say about... And this is exactly how the question was written on the card, so that's why I put it this way. Some of my friends want to live with someone before marriage to see what it's like living together and if they should marry. Now, once you understand this. We deal with this question and every other question that we deal with, uh, whether it's during the course of a sermon or whether it's during the Q&A time. Um, our desire is to help us as ...as people who desire to know this God and follow this God. And and you may not be at that point yet. You may be here just kind of checking this whole thing out. One of the things you've heard me say is it's very important that we think biblically. What does God say about questions like this? Obviously, this is a very relevant question... uh, ...since we know that a very high percentage of of, uh, couples live together now prior to marriage. Well... Is that a good idea? So, you know, try out the marriage and all that sort of thing. Well, uh, let, let's, let's talk about a few things uh, to begin with. First, remember this. God is the author. He is the inventor of marriage and the sexual experience that is part of that. Okay? They're not bad in any way. He's the one who invented them. In Genesis chapter 2, we find this passage of Scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The implication of that text is that there was a sexual experience within within the confines of this man and woman in marriage, and that that sexual experience, that sexual relationship was good. It's not a bad thing. It's not... You know, and of course, I know the church is like, oh, we can't, we can't talk about sex. You know, well, everybody else is, so I don't see why we can't, especially since God invented it and has something to say about it. So uh, you need to keep in mind that God is the one that, that invented this thing, created this thing, gave it to us in the first place. Here's another uh, idea to keep in mind. God does have expectations on those who identify with him. The people that come along say, yes, I believe in this God. I believe that he has my best interests at heart and I want to follow him. You need to understand that if you make that decision, God has expectations on your life. Uh, Here's a passage of scripture that kind of deals with this in the book of Leviticus. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the lord your god it 's a declarative statement if you 're following me here 's the introduction. I am the Lord your God um, I, I am the Lord God, so do not act. Listen to what he says. Do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live, or like the people of Canaan where i 'm taking you i 'm I'm leading you out of egypt don 't live like them don 't like them where i 'm taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees for I am the Lord your God if you obey my decrees and my regulations you will find life through them I am the Lord. Again, even in that verse, you pick up the idea that it's not that God is some big cosmic killjoy. And does oh, nobody can have fun. No. Can't do. No. That God is a loving heavenly father that wants you to enjoy life to its fullest. And so he puts parameters and, 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 and uh, fences, if you will, on our lives for our best interest. That's what he does. So... Uh, We need to we need need to comprehend and get a hold of this idea that God is the creator of this thing and God has expectations on our life as a follower of Him. Now there are so many there are lots of verses and I'm going to try and fly through just a few that I listed this morning. But begin with this uh, this encounter that Jesus had in John chapter five with a woman at the well. You may be familiar with the story. You may not. But in John chapter five we come across this. Jesus says, "Go and get your husband." Jesus told her, "I don't have a husband." The woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. you've got to feel sorry for a lady like that, right? I mean, five guys, she's got to... You've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Clearly, the implication is that that Jesus is, is... bringing out that you're, you're not living the way you ought to be living. You're living in sin right now. You're right. You've had five, and, and the guy you're living with right now isn't even your husband. You're not even married to him, and you're living with a guy. So the implication is that li- then this living uh, relationship outside the confines of marriage is wrong. Now let's run through uh, a lot of other verses. First Corinthians uh, uh it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Uh, most scholars believe he's referring to his stepmother, that the, the father had apparently died or whatever. And, and so this, this son ha, is now shacking up with his stepmother. Uh, and, and, you know, Paul says, what are you doing? Sexual immorality. Outside the confines that God designed between a man and a woman in marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6. I think it is. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul's got a lot to say to the Corinthians about sexual sin. There's a lot going on there. But since there is so much immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He's You've got to read 1 Corinthians 7 in that context. But what he's saying, men, that lust is real, temptation is real. You've got to, uh, you, you got to get a hold of that. And so make sure, husbands and wives, that you are sexually active. That's really what he's saying. Um, uh, let's see, 2 Corinthians, I think. Uh, we should not commit, uh, no, this 1 Corinthians 10. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Died. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me, humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Clearly, this is coming up again and again in Ephesians chapter 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because of these. Because these are improper for God's holy people, Colossians three, chapter five, uh, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature—sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed—which is idolatry—again and again and again and again. And then Jude chapter and Jude verse seven, um, uh, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. We're missing part of that that verse there, but in Jude chapter seven, same idea of sexual immorality. So. God has, God invented it, God designed it, but God has expectations that are on our life as a result of it, and we need to keep that in mind. Well, and what if somebody says, well, I don't care, I don't care what the Bible says, that's just too old-fashioned to me, I, I, I like living with this person, I think it's good, I think it helps our relationship, I, I think that... Uh, uh, I enjoy it, and, and besides, it's, and I've heard this a lot, it's economically, it makes more sense. It's more practical for us economically to live together. Well, let's talk about the practicality of it, okay? If you even want to just remove Scripture from it, which you can't do if you're a follower of Jesus, but you say, just, how about just from a practical standpoint? How about this article that was in uh, New York Times? It goes like this. Um, Uh, Couples who live together before marrying have nearly an 80% higher divorce rate than those who did not. Did you hear that statistic? Now, even I was shocked when I read that. I knew it was higher. I knew that there was a higher divorce rate among couples that live together before marriage than couples that don't live together. This article in New York Times said it was 80% higher. You want to talk practicality? All right, look at this. Uh, here, here's a couple of other articles. Let's go through some of these. In a Canadian study at the University of Western Ontario, sociologists found a direct, watch this, a direct relationship between cohabitation and divorce when investigating over 8,000 ever-married men and women. It was determined that living in a non-marital union has a direct negative impact on subsequent marital stability. Perhaps because living in such a union undermines the legitimacy of a formal, mar- of formal marriage and so reduces commitment of marriage. Uh, here's another I- uh, excerpt from that same article. A study by the National Council on Family Relations, watch this. Of 309 newlyweds found that those who cohabited first were less happy In marriage, So not only is there a higher divorce rate, the the ones that are even still together aren't even as happy as those that did not live together prior to uh, being uh, married. And then I think I've got one more statistic. A study of 2,746 women in the National Survey of Family Growth performed by Dr. Kahn of the University of Maryland and Dr. London of the National Center for Health Statistics found that non-virgin brides increased their odds of divorce by about 60%. It's just the statistical data that shows up. All right. Biblically, God says, no, I've given you these parameters, not because I don't like you or I don't want you, but because I love you and because I have your best interests in mind. And these parameters are uh, a marital relationship, a physical relationship, a sexual relationship belonging between a man and a woman in matrimony. Two, two statements I want to leave you with before we go on. Uh, number one is this. God knows what he's doing. He He, he really does. Now you can, you can object to it or you can deny it or you can walk away from it. But God knows what he's doing. And when he, when he designed this thing called marriage, when he designed this gift called marriage and sexuality, he really knows what he's doing. And, and, and even the practical facts bear that out. Here's the second truth I want you to know. It's just as important. God's grace is sufficient to overcome our mistakes. Because even a number of people gathered in here, statistically, almost certainly bound to be perhaps someone who is living together outside of marriage or has lived together uh, before marriage or uh, is involved in some type of improper sexual relationship as God defines it. God's grace is always sufficient to meet us where we are and to take us where he wants us to be. To be able to say, all right, my child, you haven't done what I desired for you to do and what is best for you, but let's move on from here. God's grace is always sufficient to meet us wherever we are in our lives. There's Q&A for today.